Hey, this is Joe Bakmulski, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Let's be honest, it's hard to be positive when cancer has turned your entire world inside out. But we can still look for ways to focus on things that make life a little bit easier. Things that give you joy and and sharing good times with people that you care about. And sometimes I guess we can all benefit from looking at things in a different way. In a way that really serves you during this incredibly tough time. And that's what we're talking about today with Ross. Looking at things in a different light. And Ross is a cancer survivor who is incredibly passionate about healing and wellness. And she even wrote a book called Laughing at Cancer. How to heal with love, laughter and mindfulness. Let's find out more. Ross, what I want to start with first is, I want to ask you, like, how did you find out that you had cancer? So I had some mucus and blood in my stools. um, But as much as I was concerned, I wasn't really alarmed because um, a couple of years before that, I'd had a Giardia parasite, which we think we got from a family holiday in Thailand. So I just sort of thought, all oh, right, I picked up another parasite. And I went to the doctor and um, I'd actually done a stool test and nothing came back. But anyway, the, the symptoms just kept getting, you know, more and more. And the doctor just, I think she didn't know what to do with me. And she said, right, well, let's just get you checked out. I really don't expect them to be able to find anything, but we'll just do it, peace of mind. And so I had a colonoscopy and woke up um, from the anesthetic and the gastroenterologist said, you're one lucky lady. We just removed a polyp, but all looks well. See you later. That's a good start. Yeah. Well, there was nothing to, there was nothing, there was no story then. And then four days later or five days, I can't really remember, but basically then I got, you know, the, the gastroenterologist sort of knocking on the door saying, um, really sorry, <laughs> got that wrong. It's actually really nasty and there are some cells outside that polyp. So really need to refer you on to a colorectal specialist and um, to see, you know, what your options are. So that's that's what I did. So I went along to the colorectal specialist. I had my 43rd birthday spent in his consulting suite and I was essentially given three options. One was to do nothing more and just sort of keep my fingers crossed that, you know, the cancer hadn't spread. The second option was to do a partial bowel resection, which would have most likely, you know, dealt with the situation. But again, no certainty because even with all of the advances in medical technology, the only way to assess the lymph in the bowel is to do a full bowel resection. You can't access the lymph any other way. So the only way that I could with 100% certainty know what we were dealing with um, was to was to opt for a bowel resection. And that entailed, because the, um, the pulp was in my rectum and very low down, it's quite difficult for healing. So um, I was told I'd be getting a temporary or being well temporary ileostomy. Um, so that bag that sort of sits on the outside of your stomach for three or so months um, to enable healing. Yeah, crap on the outside. Um, <laughs> sorry, you had a choke. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I asked the question that nobody really wants to ask and once you've asked, you think, why did I ask that? And I said, you know, do you have any idea as to how, you know, the likelihood, you know, the percentage of, you know, the cancer having spread? Now, 
he said he did it and he sort of said oh, it could be two to three and then I saw another um, specialist um, a, a week or so later or within that week and he sort of thought maybe three to five. Nobody knew. And at the time I sort of thought, you know, I was lecturing in health promotion, you know, done a Master of Public Health. I've done quite a bit of work with statistics and I hate statistics. But, you know, when, when we talk about statistics, you know, when it's someone else or when it's a population, one, two, three percent, doesn't sound that much. But that percentage sitting with me with two boys aged 12 and 15, it kept weighing heavier and heavier and heavier. So the choice that I thought I wasn't going to make, which was the, the full bowel resection with the elastomy, was the only choice for me because I knew what anxiety or doubt or, um, you know, would, would do to me over time. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's the other side of it. You know, one is the, the magical adventures that you go through, right? All these decisions that you have to make. But how did you take it all mentally, um, emotionally? How did you react to it all? Well, I, I really liken it to just sort of like having just like imbibed a ton of liquid lead weights. Um, I, I just felt so heavy from head to toe. It was just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, just totally overwhelmed. And ironically, months prior, I'd actually been asked to facilitate a ladies' lingerie party for, you know, a corporate business. And I was so excited. I thought, yeah, you know, corporate, finally hitting like the corporate world. And, <laughs> um, and as it transpired, this session was scheduled three days before my major surgery. And I just thought, feeling the way that I was, how would I be able to, you know, I suppose kid myself through this? So, um, but I, but I did, I turned up and, um, and I, you know, I almost lost it a couple of times, but, you know, just spoke about some of the health benefits of laughter and then actually ran a, a laughter session. And I was amazed that it was the first time since the diagnosis, which had been sort of, you know, two plus weeks before that, that I actually felt lighter that I sort of felt a lot more prepared to face what was going to be in the next future, you know, five and a half hour plus surgery. It's just, it's all consuming. It's, it's sort of when you do get bad news, it's like darkness descends, um, the weight descends and you sort of at the time just sort of you know, you just can't shake it. It's not just sort of, you know, something, you know, I mean, maybe some people can, but yeah, it was a big one. And totally bolt out of the blue. It's not like I, my family had a history of bowel cancer. I mean, later in life, there was some, you know, you know, malignant polyps and that, but they were, they were always found and, you know, nobody died of bowel cancer, put it that way. Cool. Um, and Ross, and there's a lot of really unhelpful language, you know, around cancer, the way we talk about it. What's your perspective on that? I'm really pleased that you asked that because it's actually one of my pet pet hates but it's something that I'm really conscious of so one of the first things that I was really wary of was my boys sort of hearing that mum's got the big C that mum has cancer now from the very very onset I decided that I was going to refer to my um, cancer almost like the little C um, as far as I was concerned um, until I had evidence otherwise I had a malignant polyp in my bowel, so I contained it to a specific area as I possibly could, which enabled the rest of me to be in a, a state of well-being and far more empowering. When someone sort of is given a label of a, hot, a cancer diagnosis, it's like a whole of person has cancer. The same thing could be said about someone who has diabetes as opposed to being diabetic or someone has a disability as opposed to 
being disabled. So you're actually empowering and emphasizing the healthy and well side, which is especially important to somebody who really needs some healing happening. So I was very grateful in that it still remained the literacy. You know, thank God it wasn't terminal and then it would have been, you know, something, you know, the language would have, would have been different. But it's something that, you know, to some people it might sound semantic. For me, I knew that I would be able to recover from something much more contained and specific um, than a whole of cancer, you know, diagnosis. And it was something that I really wanted to, in terms of the kids and the way that they um, sort of dealt with it, I thought it was really important for them that I that they also knew that, you know, mum, you know, mum's just got something going on in her bowel, you know, in this part of the bowel. And, and that really is so helpful. So, yeah, that's a great perspective for us because that's you're you're really putting cancer in its place. Well, I think it's as I say, it's it's no different to anything else. Like, why would you want to dilute, you know, the healthy aspect or, or or put more emphasis on this negative thing than you need to? So, as I say, contained and specific, and you know, all being well, it, it's it's nothing more than that. Yeah, that's that's very powerful, Ross. And and in terms of people around you, how did they react and did they support you in the way that you wanted to be supported? I think again it's a it's a good question because the reality is is that whenever anybody goes through any form of adversity or challenges, unless you live by yourself on an island, other people are involved. So and it's and it's really difficult, you know, essentially my role was mum, you know, first and foremost. So, you know, they were used to mum going doing the shopping, the cooking as well as working and et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden there was a lot more responsibility placed on other people in the family and and there was a lot of fear. So I think my husband sort of went into practical mode. What could he do practically to help? And that was the first sort of thing. Um, but the kids, it's 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 hard. I mean, that in terms of like the nuclear family and who was around me, um, yes, I felt the love. Yes, I knew I was supported, but... It's, it's too much almost for one nuclear family to deal with, you know, and that's where you sort of need to know that you can't get everything from one person. You need to know, okay, well, if I'm not getting enough emotional support from, you know, the, the kids or the whatever, you know, is there a friend that I can call upon? You know, what can I do to bring into my world the support that I need rather than just sort of like um, sort of lie back and think, shit, I'm just feeling so low, I don't have the support you know, my family, you know, just don't get me. So, you know, in your own way, you sort of identify what it is that you need and in as best um, way as possible trying to communicate those needs, um, which I might I might just add that I wasn't great at doing that. Um, and I think that some people find it easier asking for help. Uh, I might not sort of look like it, but I'm, I'm, I'm relatively sort of fiercely independent. And that can be really, really hard when you, when you actually become dependent and you, you go from an independent role to a dependent role, from a, a person to a patient, and it really is um, a very emotionally challenging time. Yeah, absolutely, Ross. And you're so right about saying that it's so difficult. It is so difficult to ask for help because uh, on one hand, you don't want to look weak. Also, you don't want to put some sort of a burden on someone else. But at the same time, for anyone who's gone through cancer, there are times when you feel overwhelmed and miserable and alone. And that's you need to find ways to, to communicate to people in your life. That's right. And the thing is, for me, as I say, I was 42 when I got this diagnosis. 
most people tend to be in an older demographic for bowel cancer. And it's interesting because now through Bell Cancer Australia, they've got a peer buddy mental system of which I am a, a buddy, but that didn't exist at the time. And I just happened to have a friend who managed to, who knew somebody who, you know, a friend of a sister who lived somewhere in northern New South Wales and was a similar age to me. And so we actually became phone buddies. And that was really important because I could talk to her about things. There's no way you can, you know, the things that you deal with, they're not necessarily things that your husband wants to know or that your kids need to know. You know, they're just really tough, especially all things bowel and, you know, where the, where the operation was going to be. You know, it's very close to, um, you know, all of the, the female reproductive system. And, and so, you know, there was just a lot of considerations and, and things going on. <laughs> just to have someone who'd, who'd been through it and, and was at the other side. I think that was really important for me to actually have someone in my life at the time who, you know, she was six months advanced, you know, down the track to where I was. So it was like this beak, you know, she was a bit of a beacon of lights, like, right, well, she has pretty similar, similar circumstances to me and look where she is now. Isn't that fantastic? That's where I'm going to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally with you, Ross. Like, it's an incredibly uh, empowering experience talking to someone who's like, you know, one step or several steps ahead of you. Um, I, I had testicular cancer, which is also a bit awkward because it's, it's down there, you know, it's my balls, right? And it's been really helpful to kind of have, um, when I was in the hospital, it was just so happened that I was, you know, put in the same kind of hospital room with, with a guy who also was in the same situation. And it was really great to kind of hear his, you know, his perspective on, on, you know, what helped him deal with it in terms of managing his energy and how, you know, how he responded to treatment and all of that sort of stuff. So it was, yeah, I mean, this is something that I would highly recommend to anyone going through cancer is to really find people who've been through it, whether that's online, whether that's in person, whatever way that can be done, you know? Yes, you know, and we're both involved with Cancer Aid, um, you know, and they're trying to also, you know, create a community. And I think that it's so important because it's such an isolating, scary time that the more you can connect to people and just sort of feel like you're not alone. And it's interesting, I was just actually just reading something about loneliness and loneliness is is a subjective thing. Like if you feel alone, even if you're in a crowd of people, then, you know, that and, and loneliness over time you know, it's really, really damaging on our health. It's, you know, it's equivalent to being a heavy smoker and, um, you know, it can make you 14 times more prone to, you know, chronic illness over time. So, you know, in a short spurt of time, if you, you know, with that, the loneliness and the isolation, in order to heal, you need to sort of be in the best mental state that you can be. You need to feel that there are people around you that really care about you when you're feeling lonely or alone, you might just sort of feel that other people don't, they don't really get it. They don't really get it and they can't get it. And, you know, when you start to withdraw, I think that's quite a natural thing. And that is not a constructive sort of way to empower healing and your mental state. And, you know, the opposite of that loneliness and all of that negativity is actually tapping into a positive mindset, which is far beyond you know, people sort of saying, oh, you know, it's important to be positive. Again, that's something that I have some issues with because positive, being positive is, is very passive. You need, you need something active. You need, you need stuff to actually go from positive to positivity. And positivity is, is where you, where you can actually change the way that your brain functions. You can change, 
you know, tapping into your happy hormones, you know, your dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, all of those things, um, which really assist whatever else is going on. So whether you're having, you know, medical treatment, whether you're going through just emotional stuff, if you can tap into this sort of positivity, it really just helps people advance in their well-being so much more no matter what's going on around them yeah absolutely like for me positivity is only about looking into the future and negativity is about uh, looking into the past that's all it is yes ross so what's helped you the most in terms of dealing with cancer like mentally psychologically so talking about positivity so essentially very early on i adopted the mantra i let the doctors take charge of my illness but i took charge of my wellness and very early on, I started writing. Now, journaling is known to be a very therapeutic tool, and but for me, it was just something natural that I wanted to do, and it was it was for me. But then, within a couple of entries into my diary, I started to sort of have this imaginary discussion with a future readership because I just realised that whatever I was going through, I'm sure that there were other people that were going through similar stuff, like the, the specifics, particulars, you know, would have been different, but essentially, you know, thrown into that whole new, unknown, scary world. And, you know, as you know, I'm a, I was a laughter, I am a laughter yoga facilitator. And, you know, I had sort of for years on the side been running laughter sessions for people and sort of, you know, telling people about laughter being the best medicine. Now, the irony is, is that after bowel surgery, laughter is the last thing in the world you can physically do, even if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> you know, you could barely breathe. Um, I mean, it took about five or so weeks until I could sort of laugh, you know, more comfortably you know it wasn't like torture um so i sort of had to really think right so this thing that i've taken for granted all my life it's gone temporarily what can i do to get you know to, to tap into those endorphins endorphins being our body's endogenous morphine 30 times more powerful than the synthetic version i knew they were powerful i knew that in the sessions i'd run with people doing laughter you know, I'd ask, you know, if people before the session, you know, to make a mental note if they had any pain or discomfort, and then I'd ask them after the session if they had that. And it was amazing how many people had forgotten that, like, oh, did I did I have a headache sort of thing? So I knew that endorphins and tapping into endorphins was really powerful. So the question is, how could I tap into endorphins when I really didn't feel like doing so and without the laughter and, and laughing by yourself when you're feeling crappy is just, you know, it wasn't something that I felt that that comfortable about doing it's not easy no it's not easy <laughs> so there were a few things that i did um which were really really powerful the first thing being smiling mindfulness essentially breathing um very shallowly initially but just sitting with a smile and directing the smile from my face into particularly the areas that were filled with pain and imagining you know visualizing this powerful smile just residing in that sort of part you know, of my body and just sort of like those endorphins sort of, you know, filtering through. And it was that in conjunction with the breathing really changed the way that I felt, I mean, instantaneously. So that was a daily practice. It was not like I put a time limit on it, but probably 15, 20 minutes. The other thing that I did and I still do, um, like I do with a smiling mindfulness, and I highly recommend, um, especially, you know, I, I do quite a bit of coaching work and I found that this is, it sounds so simple, but it has been so powerful, is recounting three things that went well 
in your day. Now, this is evidence-based stuff, Joe. This isn't stuff that I just sort of dreamed up. This sort of comes out of the School of Positive Psychology. And basically, they, they did studies um, with people with chronic anxiety and depression. And after, it was a 12-week um, study, but even after six weeks, they found that the group that had that recounted three things that went well in their day had a significant increase in positive effect and a significant decrease in negative effect. So much more positive feeling, much less negative feeling. And what that basically does is I, I did this practice, um, you know, as I was just like lying in bed for the night and it essentially put a, a break on the ruminating thoughts because when you start to think of things that went well or things that, you know, are positive or good, you're not thinking about the things that are bad, negative or didn't go well. So even if they were small things like, wow, I managed to walk down three houses today. That's so cool. <laughs> or, you know, I had such a nice visitor today or, you know, I managed to eat something without significant abdominal discomfort. So essentially what that does is it trains your brain to notice the good. And the more that you notice the good, the stronger that sort of neural pathway to noticing the good is. And it weakens the tracks in the brain that are sort of wired to always thinking about all the things that didn't go well. And so what you sort of bring your attention to, what you focus on, that is what grows. So you can either choose to focus on all the stress and all of the fear and all of the frustration, the F words that I call them. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can actually focus on, to really make a conscious choice to focus on on the small things, these micro moments of joy, the small things that went well, because the more that you actually look for them, the more that you will see. And that is really important for somebody um, in any sort of terms of, um, you know, being bolster their mental health and, and enhance people's well-being. So conscious gratitude practice was critical to me. The smiling mindfulness was was really, really important. And the other thing that was really powerful for me and I highly recommend is reframing. Now, we had a little bit of a chat before about the big C versus the little C. That is an example of reframing, reframing the language around cancer to something that sits better with you. I'll give you another example. I never liked the terminology of a bowel reversal, which was the operation I was going to be having to delete the ileostomy and, you know, reconnect the bowel. And for me, like reversal was going back to the way things were. It was, it was negative. I didn't want that negative terminology. So in my way, I reframed it that I would refer to this operation as a bowel reconnection because it's so much more positive. It's future focused. And again, I went into that operation feeling a lot more empowered um, than had I gone in, you know, as I say, this is just me. It's not, you know, necessarily for anyone, but, you know, then, then sort of saying I was having a bowel reversal. I was having a bowel reconnection. And there are so many other ways that we can reframe to actually find a little glimmer of hope, to find some positivity in a negative or really challenging situation. And it's really, really important if you, you can actually write down a particular, you know, a challenging time that you've had in your life and, and try to just envisage, was there some unanticipated positive something that happened or did something make you smile or laugh along the way? Or is there anything good that has come out of that? You know, is there something good that you can see? And what that actually does is helps your brain 
recall that incident differently. It actually takes away some of that trauma, takes away some of that pain, and it, it sort of taps into a lot of that stuff that we even carry around in our subconscious mind. We're not even conscious about it, and it helps us change the way we remember that particular episode. And I think that especially, you know, people who've been going through intense um, medical regimens that can be really helpful because sitting with trauma, I don't think we, we understand how much trauma we sort of carry around with us and it's long term, it's, it's not a good thing. So reframing, smiling mindfulness and conscious gratitude were things that really powerfully helped me create and I won't say maintain because it was an ongoing challenge, but, you know, emphasize that positive mindset. So, now, six years down the track, I know that even if I might sort of start down the, oh my gosh, you know, this is happening. Oh no, da da da. I was like, I, I can stop myself. I've got that sort of mindful awareness now to say, right, that's not helpful. Let's think, is there anything good that's come? You know, in this moment, what, you know, what can I appreciate? In this moment, what, if anything, you know, there must be something that is going well that's okay. Yeah, that's fantastic, Ross. Like you kind of filter things through hope and try to look at things from a different perspective, from perspective which is a lot more helpful. Yes. Yeah, so Ross, I, I know that like laughter and cancer don't necessarily always go together. And we just talked yeah. about that. But I heard about the laughter yoga from my friend Kevin. So, and I know you have some unique strategies around that. So could you talk about what, what that is for you? Sure. So... Laughter, I mean, laughter is a very powerful modality. It's, um, you know, when you laugh, it's, it's very oxygenating. You know, you try laughing without breathing. You can't do it. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it, again, it's tapping into those endorphins. It helps in, um, strengthen our immune system. It lowers the blood pressure. Basically, it's an extraordinary stress buster. So any situation, um, that you can sort of have a laugh about, not necessarily into someone's face or being disrespectful, but in, you know, in that respectful context, choosing to laugh is a really important thing. And it's about not leaving laughter to, ch to chance because the times that we tend to need to laugh the most for the health benefits of laughter are the times that we need to, that, that we feel like laughing the least. So, you know, getting a bowel cancer diagnosis is, is one of those moments. It's like, it's not really a laugh out loud moment, but being able to actually choose to, for example, either, you know, in your own time, watch comedy as opposed to the news. You know, just in your own time, choose what, you know, friends that you decide to to associate with, you know, people that sort of bolster your mood and make you feel good or they're the ones that think about all of the worries and fears that you hadn't even thought of and bring you down, you know. So it's about deciding what you do in your own time to sort of bring more laughter in. And, you know, for example, it's, it's really powerful in terms of anxiety to counter anxiety and depression. So I remember 12 months down the track, I actually had my, you know, follow up, you know, annual CT scan and, um, the follow up appointment with the colorectal specialist. And he said, you know, everything's looking good, Roz, although, um, there's a little growth on your liver. And I think that that's worth getting checked out. It's like, what? <laughs> And so, of course, you know, I went back to the gastroenterologist that had done the initial colonoscopy and he said, listen, I'm, you know, pretty confident that it's the benign liver cyst, but I'll organize for an MRI, but you've had so much going on, you know, you can wait a couple of months. And, you know, again, it's like the irrational part of my mind kicked in. It's like, well, hold on, 
you told me that my polyp was fine and it wasn't and it's like oh my gosh I got this thing on my liver and da 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 and I ended up having like a post-traumatic response to 12 months down the track to so much of what I went through and I was so strong about all of that I'm thinking oh my gosh if this is like anything that's not benign I don't know how I'm going to cope and I got really quite chronic anxiety and I really sat with it I did a lot of breathing mindfulness a lot a lot a lot of conscious breathing um, which definitely helped but it wasn't enough to sort of boost my mood so what I would do was I'd actually I wasn't comfortable about laughing just sort of out loud at home because you got to find something that works for you for me when I was in my car I would pretend that I was just having an hilarious conversation with someone um, and literally just laugh, 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 laugh for like a few minutes at traffic lights, whatever. And it didn't worry me that, you know, people would sort of look in and they just think, oh, she's having, you know, having fun with a friend or something. It was the most powerful thing that I could do to essentially help eliminate a lot of anxiety. It really, if my anxiety levels were, say, at an eight, they would be brought down to maybe a four in moments now that that sounds crazy but it is so powerful because again when you're laughing you're in that moment of joy you've left all your troubles behind and you're flooding your system with these endorphins and you're also because of the breathing aspect as well you're, you're basically tapping into your parasympathetic nervous system which is our other nervous system to the sympathetic nervous system and what happens on a daily basis or when we're going through stress or basically probably a lot of your listenership um, would be able to relate is that this stress system, this sympathetic nervous system just doesn't switch off. It's in overdrive because we've just been bombarded with 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 all these things that we've got to do and, and next test results and waiting for that test result and thinking about what might be the parasympathetic nervous system is the nervous system that calms our whole body down. It hushes that feeling of calm into our body. And so breathing helps really trigger what's called the relaxation response. And then the laughter, not only is because you say you've got to breathe to laugh, but it taps into the endorphins. And it's just like this instantaneous circuit breaker. It just changes your whole physiology. And it's making decisions, choices to to laugh out loud. You know, if if a rerun of Seinfeld was on, rather than just sort of sit on the couch with a smile, it it would be to actually consciously choose to laugh out loud and really laugh and share a laugh with people. One of the most powerful things when I came out of hospital and about week five, when, when I could start to laugh again, was our family, of course, squeezing onto our couch and, you know, watching a comedy. And it really, just as a family, just connected us it just helped just get rid of a lot of the stress and the anxiety and it's like, yay, we're laughing again. No, mum's okay, we're laughing. And it's really, I mean, some people can be a little bit disparaging about it and honestly it's such an important thing that, you know, I don't think that we would have been given the gift of laughter if it wasn't important. And, and you know, we smile and we laugh before we talk. That's how we used to communicate. So it's really important, but the problem is, is that when we go through stuff, the laughter gets, you know, deeper and deeper within. And it's like, you sort of quite rightly don't feel that it is a laughing out loud time, but in some way that feels right to you, it's essential. It's really essential for your mental wellness, for the people around you. And yeah, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic, Rose. And tell us about your laugh out loud project. How did that come about? Oh, in aged care, 
I was at the time lecturing at La Trobe University and I'd um, sort of got chatting to one of the nursing um, staff there and she had a, a sort of a secondment with an, a large aged care facility. So, so essentially we devised a laughter activities program for 35 aged care facilities across Victoria where 30 minutes for six weeks we would run 30 minutes of, of laughter. So it was laughter yoga, so it's the laughter exercises and the breathing and the clapping. And it was really, really powerful. We'd measure blood pressure and heart rate um, before and after each session. And we'd also, a couple of times at the beginning, in the middle and at the end of the, the study, we measured um, positive and negative effect and also happiness. And again, it was really powerful thing that, you know, in six weeks we sort of found, you know, the blood, you know, each blood pressure consistently dropped. Um, at the end of the session, um, not like too low. Um, you know, there was much, <laughs> there was less negative effect and, and, you know, just watching people just socially connect, you know, just after a session or before or people with dementia who had very, very low levels of communication would, you know, one lady who barely talked, but when I went before she'd see me coming down the corridor, it's like, well, there's the laughter lady. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. She can barely talk, but there's the laughter lady. And as I said to you, you know, laughter is something that we're born with and it's one of the first means of communication. So the amazing thing was is that even people with dementia could laugh. It like came back to wow. them, like even once their language had gone and even if they couldn't laugh, they could smile. Or even just being in that atmosphere, in that environment, you could just feel a, a shift. And when you get older, you tend to get less active. And the, the wonderful thing is that, you know, there were some comments of people, you know, they felt that, you know, they were getting an aerobic workout and they felt so much better for it. So even people with really limited mobility could do this. And so after that particular project, we then trained staff. And so still to this day, there many of the facilities are running various laughter programs or adding laughter activities apart, you know, as part of already existing activities. Um, so say, for example, if they're doing gardening, you know, they might sort of, you know, pretend they've got a spade and it's a, <laughs> so, you know, digging the ground and pulling out, you know, this beautiful carrot or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that was a really beautiful project to be part of. Yeah, that's really spectacular. I mean, to be known as the laughter lady in your life, I think that's <laughs> that's exactly what you want. Yeah, it certainly beats the um the anxiety lady or the the depression lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely, Rosalind. Tell us about your book as well. Yeah. Okay. So as I said, I started writing journals, and you know, as I say, very much it started for myself. But then I found that at the end of each chapter, I was just sort of like including sticky notes of questions to people. It's like oh, I wonder, you know, if other people's friendship circles changed or, you know, was there some sort of part of their, um, you know, diagnosis a terminology that they weren't happy with? You know, did they reframe the language around that? And then I'd also include just various techniques that I, you know, would consider like, you know, the conscious gratitude practice or smiling mindfulness or, or walking mindfulness, you know, things that I did that I sort of experimented. So I think before my experience with the bowel cancer, I sort of, in a way, all these things, they were a bit theoretical. Um, but when you actually have to live them, you, you really, then you really feel and find out if they are right for you. So I would experiment with lots of different things like reframing and, and that. And quite early on, I sort of made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to just keep it to myself, that especially, you know, like you've had testicular, you know, cancer, 
people don't like talking about bowel cancers and I could get in trouble saying this, but there are sexier cancers and in terms of funding and things like that. And I thought, you know, I'm quite comfortable talking about bowel cancer. I'm quite comfortable talking about these things um, that other people aren't comfortable talking about. And it's really important to have conversations about these things, to feel that you're not alone. You know, what you're doing is so important, Joy. You know, these podcasts, it's, it's, you know, really hats off to you. It's really important for people to sort of feel that there are other people going through similar things and perhaps these things that you didn't even dare to think about or vocalize. You know, I'm happy to sort of put my, my sort of experience, you know, to help other people. I'm really happy to do that. And thankfully my family were on board. So I had, um, at the end of sort of a year or so about three journals and then over the next year I wrote another one um, as well so there were four journals and I I decided at the time I didn't want to do anything with them um, because I sort of there was two things about it I didn't want to be defined by bowel cancer I wanted to spend more time in the wellness world and the other thing was I had this fear that I'd sort of be stepping back into a dark space and I just needed time out the interesting thing is is that a few years after that, um, which was prompted by various friends getting various not nice diagnoses, and I said, right, it's time. And I went back, I dug out my journals, and I realized that they actually weren't as negative as I thought. I still can't, I think I must have been deluded. Didn't even, it wasn't even on drugs. Um, I don't know why it was, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I realized that, that they were actually a really useful um, and positive way to sort of enhance other people along their illness to wellness journeys as such so my my sort of first working title was I heal you heal um but then and then I and I really wasn't comfortable about the laughing at cancer that sort of as a title because the title's laughing at cancer how to heal with love laughter and mindfulness and the last thing that I wanted was people to sort of think I was laughing at cancer and making fun of it and it's a funny matter because it's not you know people die of cancer you know, tragically, or go through a lot of pain. But for me, laughter was more about as a metaphor, really, um, for finding light, for, for actually things that we can do to orient our mindset to um, positivity, even during adversity. So, so my book is essentially structured about. So, it's it's each each chapter is you know something that I've been processing or dealing with, and at the end of each chapter, there's reader engagement healing strategies, techniques, etc. So as much as it's about me, it's not. It's really an invitation for other people to explore aspects of their own life, of their own life journey, really. And I have been very positively overwhelmed by people who found that, even people who haven't had cancer, that they've found it really helpful you know, I mean, even my like 86 year old, my husband's uncle, which I was like, there were parts of my book I really didn't want him to read. Um, but you know, <laughs> he's told me that, you know, he now every night he thinks about three things that went well in his day and he feels so much better for it. And it's such a privilege to be able to sort of birth a book, um, and to get feedback and to feel that in some, some small way, perhaps, you know, I may have inspired a bit of change or I may have been able to, you know, just help someone sort of connect to their joy, connect to their positivity where they thought that it was the last thing in the world they, they could do. In a way, I'm trying to give permission to people to 
allow that to happen because people sort of feel that if you're going through grief or if you're going through, you know, a cancer or something like that, that you're not entitled to joy, to happiness, to, you know, to having some pleasure. Um, but it's really, really important to make those moments, to not leave them to chance. Thank yeah. you so much, Ross. Yeah, that's such a fantastic point. And thank you so much for your brutal honesty. I mean, those words really all need to be said. Oh, thank you so much. And if anybody is interested, um, my book, um, Laughing at Cancer, How to Heal with Love, Laughter and Mindfulness, it's, it's available online, um, bookshops. And if you know someone who, you know, you really, you know, think might, might want a sort of personal inscription, please go to my website, laughingatcancer.com. Send me an email and, um, I'm happy to sort of throw in the postage um, so you wouldn't pay any more and I'm happy to write in it for someone because I know that sometimes that can, you know, just make a bit of a difference to someone. So Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time and for sharing your perspective. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with and you don't want to go it alone. Um, you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. So then there is the outcome map. Like this is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like, is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you can, you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague. Her name is Jill. Her husband had prostate cancer. So, uh, so he, she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times, um, when you go through cancer, when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling, you're on this roller coaster of emotions and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it. And there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want, or you can just listen to it online and, you know, and just uh, listen along with the PDF. 
So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one-page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it, like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, that we just talked about. You'll also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of Simplify Cancer. And listen, I'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how I'm doing here. I mean, are you getting what, you, what you're looking for? Was there something in particular that, that really made sense to you? Or is there a question that you want to ask? Or maybe there's, there's just something that you, you want to get off your chest. Like, please, I need to know. Just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 